The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we take a look at the intersection of genetics, science, politics, identity, and hundreds of years of colonization. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Kim Tallbear, the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples Technoscience and Environment, and an Associate Professor in the Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta. She is a founding advisory board member of the Summer Internship for Indigenous Peoples and Genomics based at the University of Illinois Institute for Genomic Biology, and a decolonial bioethics faculty member in the program. Dr. Tallbear is a citizen of the Sisseton Wapaton Oyate in South Dakota. She's here today to talk about her book, Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science. Kim, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me on. So in the book, you open by saying scientists and the public alike are on the hunt for Native American DNA. What did you mean by that? Well, scientists, and there's a real um, entanglement of the priorities and interests, I think, of the public who consumes their science and scientists themselves. So the scientists that I ended up researching were human population geneticists and physical anthropologists, people who were really interested in ancient human migrations and around the world. And that's related to looking at the way that uh, contemporary populations are related to one another. And so, you know, we had uh, the... um, Uh, mitochondrial Eve phenomenon in the 1990s and uh, the out of Africa narrative that was conditioning the way that scientists were looking at human migrations. And I just got really interested in the way in which they, because I'm a scholar of race as well, and in the way in which they impose contemporary racial ideas and stories and categories onto the ancient human past, which there's kind of no way out of that. But they do it in a way that seems like they don't think it's problematic or that these kinds of racial ideas are timeless. And of course, they're relatively recent. So I do want to talk uh, about how genetics is currently being used to try and answer some anthropological questions. So can you give us a little primer on how genetics and anthropology mash up right now? Well, in fact, I really especially enjoy talking with and working with uh, genetic anthropologists. And these are people trained in anthropology, but who use DNA to answer anthropological questions. There are also people just trained in biology or genetics that I think do bad anthropology. So, (laughs) um, so it's I think the training is important if one is asking what are uh, really anthropological questions. So questions about human cultures and how humans uh, have evolved, how they're related to one another. Um, and so the, the geneticists that I work with that are trained in anthropology are uh, taking, for example, I've worked with a lot of people who work on ancient DNA, and they will uh, take human remains, largely, or, you know, samples from bodies, and they will look at uh, genetic sequences in those bodies. Those are often mitochondrial DNA sequences that are inherited um, by human by people from their only their mothers, or they'll look at Y chromosome DNA that of course are passed from fathers to sons. They'll sometimes look at uh, the nuclear DNA, which um, gets recombined um, during conception. And that makes lineages harder to look at because of that recombination. So they tend to get really interested in the, the Y chromosome and the mitochondrial DNA because recombination isn't happening. Those sequences are inherited in total from mothers or fathers. And they're really good windows into those maternal 
and paternal lineages. Um, and then there are uh, different uh, sequences or mutations that happen that can sort of place different uh, bodies and populations uh, at different places in the world. And of course, they can look at mutation rates and figure out, say, how long ago uh, populations uh, separated or diverged. So it's it's an interesting way to basically do genealogy or, or you know, he, he look at the, the family tree of the human family tree. When did we start using some of these genetic techniques to try and understand anthropological questions like this? Oh, gosh, you know, um, I'm not a historian of science, but I've, I have had to read a lot in that area. I think it, it probably goes back to about the 1960s, but it really ramped up in the 1980s and 1990s with the Human Genome Diversity Project in particular. So there's been a lot of uh, literature published uh, really since the early 1990s, and it's quite a, a growing and a thriving field now. So these do seem like really interesting research questions. How does research on modern living Native American indigenous populations fit into questions from the scientific research perspective? I mean, why is modern Native American DNA important to try and help us answer some of these questions? Well, scientists are really interested in the way in which contemporary uh, native populations descend from uh, ancient populations. And so they need to look at the relationships between ancient DNA and remains and contemporary populations to figure out, uh, you know, which contemporary native populations are related to one another, uh, how long ago those those lines diverge, so they can look at um, approximate dates uh, that certain parts of the Americas got settled uh, how long ago, say, I might share an ancestor with uh, somebody that they could sample down at the tip of Latin America, right? So recently, they've had two um, uh, complete genomes analyzed from ancient remains. One was, well, not complete genomes, but they've, they've done a lot of DNA research. One is on the Kennewick Man um, remains that were found. Uh, they're 9,000-year-old remains, and they were found in 1996 at the, on the Columbia River in Washington State. Um, and then they also have uh, the Anzic child remains. I can't remember how old those ones are. But they, they what they did by comparing those two sets of remains to contemporary native populations that they had samples for was they determined that Kennewick man is actually does have direct descendants among the tribes that are in the area where those remains were found. There are multi, there are several tribes in Washington state um, because they were able to sample both the ancient remains and sample living people living in those tribal communities communities today. What they discovered from the Anzic child remains, which were found in Montana, was that uh, Anzic child's most uh, closest or more, most direct living relatives, based on the samples that they have in Native America, is really undersampled. But Anzic child's um, direct descendants are actually down somewhere in South America, or they are more closely related. There are people who can claim relation to Anzic child up here, but but his closest relatives or more, most direct relatives are in Latin America, which shows you migration, which we already know, but it kind of gives more texture to those migration stories. So these questions and some of the answers we're starting to tease out using uh, genetics to help us out are really interesting and fascinating. But of course, um, when we're talking about scientists and researchers going into Native American communities uh, and taking blood samples, getting DNA samples. I mean, we've done that before. We've been doing research on and with Native communities before, and it hasn't always gone that well. <laughs> 
Right. You know, I think there's there's this perception out there, I think, in the, the sort of scientific consuming public and among many scientists that uh, Native Americans are just anti-science. And one of the things that I like to say is, you know, having worked with indigenous scientists, with non-indigenous scientists, with indigenous communities, um, that's an overly simplistic story. What I have come to see is that Native American communities are really resistant to the imposition of um, control over science. So they're, they get more interested in science when they perceive questions that they are interested in as, as being more center stage, when they get to participate collaboratively in research. Um, there's a feeling that in a lot of Native American communities that that scientific research, whether that's genetics, uh, whether it's forms of engineering, it can even be social science and humanities. Uh, there's there's a feeling that that the academy has been really central to the colonial project. And that's true. I mean, we see that in social studies of science. Um, you know, our, our nation states really put science in the U.S. in particular, put science front and center, and it often has, and that includes anthropology in uh, in its sort of uh, governing projects, in its expansionary sort of expansionist kind of uh, tendencies. So that's what they're concerned about. I think that it's actually a political response to the role of science and colonialism versus a resistance to the production of scientific knowledge itself. I mean, they don't want they don't want science done on their bodies without their consent, uh, asking questions that are not helpful to them necessarily, that might be more helpful to the researcher. But, you know, indigenous communities are wondering, what do they get out of all this after they've donated their blood and their time and their bodies have been so subject to the scientific gaze for so long now? Can you maybe give us a couple of examples of the types of problematic research that's been done or maybe is being done right now even? Well, you know, we've seen some progress uh, since the 1990s in uh, geneticists, I'll use that as an example, doing more collaborative research, doing better uh, consent. So we had a couple of high profile projects, probably the, one of the most famous um, examples of science gone wrong would be the uh, Havasupai uh, genetic research that happened through Arizona State University uh, scientists back in the early 1990s. And um the Arizona Board of Regents ended up settling out of court when they were sued by the Havasupai, which is a tribe that is located at the base of the Grand Canyon. So it's it's kind of tough to get in and out of there, right? Uh, and um, that tribe had agreed to do uh, diabetes research, uh, and diabetes is at epidemic rates among certain uh, tribes. And so for them, research into diabetes was something that they were interested in, thought might eventually benefit them or benefit other indigenous people. But what happened was those samples were actually used to do uh, human migrations research, which they said they did not agree to. Uh, and they were also, this is probably even more problematic, um, they were used to justify writing a grant to get schizophrenia research done. And schizophrenia is doubly stigmatizing in that the, the disease itself can be stigmatizing. But it also, researching schizophrenia also involves researching consanguinity or quote-unquote inbreeding. And they were worried about stigmatization on that front. Um, and they also explicitly said they did not agree to that. Um, now, to go back to the human migrations research, it was pretty common back in the 90s 
1990s. And I was in a lab in the early 2000s where I saw this happen for a uh, scientist to have uh, samples in their freezer from a particular indigenous community, blood samples, and to get a call from another scientist across the country or across the world asking if they could, you know, get their hands on those samples to do research. And, uh, Tribes have really pushed back on that since the 1990s, and they're pushing for consent agreements that don't allow scientists basically to own the samples or the data once it's taken from indigenous bodies, but rather indigenous people want ongoing authority over the stewardship of those samples. Um, and they want some control over the kinds of research questions that are asked based on their bodily fluids. So one of the things I do want to talk about, because it's something that I think a lot of non-Native people don't really understand, they may have heard about it, but they they probably don't really know how it works, is the idea of uh, blood quantum. Um, mm-hmm. And in particular, because this has some interesting connections to some of the the genetic stuff that's going on as well. So can you maybe give us a quick primer on what blood quantum is for people who don't know? Sure. And I think blood quantum is more difficult than basic genetics. So just let me say, (laughs) Um, it's really complicated. And people who grow up in tribal communities around the United States, we get it. And to listen in on our conversations, it's just it's, it's crazy complicated. So um, the common story goes that the that federal agencies uh, imposed blood quantum onto tribes in the late 19th, early 20th century, when they were developing, uh, for example, land management policies. So uh, tribes before uh, federal management or, or the federal relationship didn't have written roles, right? I mean, community was fluid. Uh, tribes were based on kinship relationships um, or cultural groups. So they may not, they didn't call themselves tribes at the time. The word Oyate in the name of my tribe actually means the people. Um, and it sometimes gets translated at nation. So you had all these different peoples, you know, organizing themselves. Well, here comes the U.S. federal government as the colonial state. And they decide to break up the tribal land base. This is once one of their modes of assimilation and colonization. They want to break up collective land bases and make everybody into, in, into an individual landowner. Um, so they, des- they had what was called the Allotment Act. Um, the federal government. And so they ended up dividing up uh, communal land bases into these 160 acre allotments uh, for heads of household, which were always men. And then if men had a wife, they'd get another 80 acres. If they had a kid, they'd get 40 acres for each child. I think those were the, the way that that was allotted. So what happened was in order to decide who to give land to as an Indian, and that was the the word at the time, you had to have a list of Indians, you know, and so they had to go through these tribal communities and have people line up and and they put them down on a list as an Indian. Well, they the they part of the rules were they would uh, actually give title to the land to anybody who was half blood or less, because the the racial thinking at the time was well, if they're only a half blood Indian, then they're closer to being a white man, and they're closer to understanding private property, and we can give them uh, the title to this land. If they're a full blood Indian, they don't really get white ways; they're racially less developed or evolved, and so we're not going to give them land tenure. We have to train them to be individual landowners and farmers like white men, and eventually they'll get they'll get uh, 
that tenure over that land. So that's kind of where Blood Quantum uh, starts by by the Indian agent who's doling out land title, looking at somebody and deciding whether they're full blood or half blood or quarter blood. And this isn't a scientific project. They're just kind of eyeballing them. So what happened was you get full siblings, uh, you know, because of the way that recombination works, right? You can have two siblings from the same two parents, but they might look slightly racially different. And so uh, you would get a sibling who was identified as full blood and a sibling who was identified as half blood or whatever, just by eyeballing them. So fast forward to the mid to late 20th century. And you have tribal governments now taking over those uh, tribal membership rules. And so today we make our own rules. There is much less federal oversight than there was uh, back then. And so you will see tribes um, regularly kind of revising their tribal rules based on, you know, wanting to manage the numbers on their roles. But we still, many of us rely on blood quantum. It's kind of a hard thing to let go for for various reasons that, that have a lot to do with um, post-World War II migration when people start started migrating off reservations into urban areas for employment or joining the military around World War II, you started get a lot getting a lot more mixing, quote unquote. And so tribes began to worry a little bit about um, uh, people moving off the reservation, uh, getting together with with non natives, having children with them, those people coming back to the reservation, flooding the roles, taxing resources. And so there's still debates we have around the wisdom of using blood quantum to sort of manage those numbers. So tribes can manage the, the the housing and education and employment resources that they have and make those go around to existing members. And so if the roles get flooded with a bunch of new people, tribes worry, I think that they can't completely uh, fund or support the, um, the community. So the rules are kind of both uh, to try and keep a cultural connection, but also kind of a logistical challenge as well. They are a big logistical challenge. And yeah, we do have when we when we debate changes in tribal uh, enrollment or blood quantum. So my tribe regularly has deep conversations about whether to go from one one quarter uh, native blood to one eighth native blood. And remember, this is all on paper, right? There's no examination of real blood going on. yeah, a lot of the conversations are about, well, what if all these people move back then who have never been affiliated with our community, they haven't really been socialized as Dakota, we can't handle all of that, they might overwhelm our community, you know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of conversations that happen around that. So how are advances in genetic science and technology changing the conversation about membership, if, if it is at all? Well, what what has happened is I think it's pretty pervasive in the United States now, and I've also seen it among First Nations in Canada, that uh, tribal governments are using DNA testing, but not the genetic uh, ancestry testing that comes from human population genetics that I was talking about. They're using uh, DNA parentage tests. So the DNA profile that's used in, say, you know, for forensic science or, or criminal cases, or when you just need to do a paternity test, that's a really different kind of DNA test. But what they're doing is, um, if quite often, if they're, if, a if, if parentage is in question, um, it's paternity, obviously. And if somebody say needs to document their paternal line in order to show what their lineal descent is from a base role, so the base tribal roles and the that were put together in around the allotment time, or if they need to prove their blood quantum, they may need that father's lineage. And if it's not sure that that the person they're claiming as their father is their biological father, they'll come in and do a DNA test. Uh, this is pretty pervasive. Now, most tribes will do it on a case by case basis. But what you have seen in this has gotten tribal enrollment even more bad press, is you've seen a very few 
very wealthy casino tribes with very small populations who divide up uh, casino benefits among individual tribal members. And in those very wealthy tribes, you know, this can be a, a million dollars a year or something per member. Those tribes have moved to across the board DNA testing. And they have actually ended up, of course, if you go into a room and you DNA test everybody for parentage, you're going to come out with some falsely attributed biological parentage in there. You know, you could have it as high as 10% people don't have the biological father they think they have. So that's what happens if you go in and test a whole population, right? And then some people have gotten thrown off the rolls because they were tracing their descent from somebody listed on a base role. And there's a there's a break there in lineage, right? So you go into depth in your book about how genetic testing companies are very specifically targeting Native American people and tribes, at least some of them are. Um, what's going on here? And why are they targeting Native American tribes specifically? Well, so I've seen DNA testing companies pop up that are selling the genetic ancestry test to the public, uh, people that are interested in researching their family tree, and that's all really interesting. But they might also offer paternity tests, because I think there's probably, I don't know what the breakdown is in terms of profit, but there's a good market for paternity testing. Uh, and so these these same companies um, who might have, uh, you know, researchers involved that are doing the genetic ancestry stuff are also, you know, trying to make money off selling paternity tests. And so, you know, they're just, they're trying to make money, right? And uh, so they'll go to tribal conferences. There are different national tribal conferences that happen and they'll set up with with a lot of, at the trade show that happens. I, this, I've seen this happen at National Congress of American Indians, which is a huge annual conference. Uh, I've heard of it happening at the um, National Indian Gaming Association conferences where they'll, they'll set up in the on the trade, trade show floor and talk to tribes about DNA testing. Um, so, you know, they're, they're companies trying to make money like anybody else. I, I don't see an agenda beyond that. Although what I do see them doing is sort of um, preaching this idea that there is some scientifically objective way to do your membership based on DNA testing. And of course, that's not true. Membership is highly politicized. It's highly subjective. Uh, and you can decide to plug a DNA test in to, su to support those political decisions or not. But there is no scientifically neutral way to decide who should be a member of a tribe or not. You talk a little bit in the book about some of the problematic messaging that you were seeing in some of the marketing efforts, things about being able to scientifically tell whether or not someone, uh, someone's ancestry belongs to a very specific tribe. Right, which is completely false. Um, and what that tells me is that the genetic scientists doing this work don't understand the way that tribe is defined. They are conflating a tribal community or a first nation with a biological or genetic population. Now, first of all, on the scientific front, there's already huge debates and problems with acting as if any genetic population is ever a discrete thing. So you've got lots of social scientists and historians of science who really take to task scientists who use the word population in a way that retains too many old school racial ideas. That's a whole body of literature. But aside from that, aside from the problems with how one defines population genetically, we also have how one defines a tribe socially and politically and scientists for the most part don't understand that history. So tribes are certainly 
comprised of people that are related biologically. But you have to go back to the to the era of colonization, largely in the 19th century, post Indian Wars, when the reservation era happened, and you had different bands of people put together on different reservations, these 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 large, thriving, intricately connected indigenous communities and kinship groups were kind of severed and put onto these these little reservation land bases. And so they, for example, made tribes out of peoples that hadn't previously maybe been living that closely together. They put multiple tribes onto one reservation. Again, everything was designed for the ease of land management in Indian containment by the federal government. So geneticists go into these communities and what they're interested in is taking a sample from a person who ideally has four grandparents who are from that quote unquote tribe. They're looking for a a level of populational purity that just can't exist when uh, these tribes are placed on these land bases in during a time of colonial relocation and removal, not to mention all of the ways in which indigenous people move around in the 20th century. There was relocation to border schools. There was the termination era in the 1950s in which the federal government terminated tribes, uh, tried to uh, take away native status from people, and then they found out that didn't work as an assimilation tactic, so they reconstituted tribes. There is the fact that um, a native person from one tribe might go to boarding school somewhere and meet somebody for who's Navajo, and then they get together and they have children and such. So- suddenly you've got these indigenous people who have lineages and multiple official tribal communities. I mean, it's like they think that native people just sit around on the reservation and marry each other and never move around. We're highly mobile post-colonization, and our ancestors were highly mobile pre-colonization. So this conflation of a, assuming that a tribe is a biological population is kind of scientifically nonsensical, and it's politically and socially nonsensical. We've talked about how race is a social construct before on this show. And one of the things you argue in this book is that biological ideas of race still inform a lot of the science we do today. So and I think you mentioned that a little bit when you were talking about the problems associated with the ideas of population. So can you unpack that a little? How uh, old school biological race continues to inform the way that genetic research gets done now? Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, I mean, uh, there's the earlier on in racial science in the early 20th century, there was this idea that uh, uh, you could go back in history and look at these sort of uh, founding ancestors and uh, scientists, you know, back in the 19th century, were talking about race as if different racial groups came from different pairs, different Adams and Eves, right? So you had these theories of monogenesis, do all humans come from one Adam and Eve, uh, or do uh, different races come from multiple Adams and Eves, and that would have been the theory of polygenesis, right? And so this is a an era in the 19th century when scientists, cutting-edge science, not pseudo pseudoscience, but cutting edge science at at leading institutions, where those scientists were debating, you know, whether the human species was one species or, or, or whether races were multiple species. So today, what happens is, you know, those those theories have been debunked. But you still have geneticists um, who buy into ideas, not of hard racial categories, but of this notion of clines, right? So you have, um, they, they like to talk about populations instead of races um, differing because they have uh, higher and lower frequencies of certain kinds of genetic markers. So there's not hard lines between populations. 
institutions, but they're, they're sort of playing at statistics and looking at frequencies of different genetic markers in different populations. So for example, you might find, um, uh, genetic marker A at a 77% frequency in a population from South Africa, and you might only find it at a 2% frequency in a population from East Asia, and they would then turn around and say, okay, well, that marker is basically, quote unquote, an African marker. So that's the different way in which uh, race happens. But but what they do is they they take these these terms that we use for races that emerged at a time when scientists and lay people alike thought that races had hard boundaries between them and it's still they it still seems like they're looking for those hard boundaries even though they recognize that there's sort of fluidity at the edges and the way that they name things and the way that they go into populations they and they look for the the purest individual and they might not use the word pure they would use the word unadmixed but really what they're looking for is an individual who comes from people that they feel have always been in that location or have always been uh together as a a people or a community in in uh as they maybe travel together. And that's just not how humans are. I mean, human beings uh, move around, they mix culturally, but they're still looking for stasis in place. Uh, and they're looking for these, these populations of people who kind of moved uh, intact as a community over time, over place through time. And it's just not, it, does that make sense that they're, they're, they're looking for these kinds of hard boundaries or harder boundaries or more solid boundaries between peoples and communities that I think just don't really play out socially. I'm not sure if that's helpful, but I think it is telling definitely that even though we've sort of debunked the idea of race divisions in science, scientists still use the same broad categories of race to marker people out from each other to to separate out population groups. Right. And it's, it's hard, right? I mean, it's hard to, to not rely on the common names that we have in English when, when we're attempting to name people. Um, but I just wish people would be a little bit more mindful that to call a population of people or their blood samples, African, you know, African blood or African DNA is to implicitly deny that there are other uh, lineages uh, within those samples. It's to deny the fact that people uh, have moved around kind of a lot. And it's to deny that um, the way that we even label continents or peoples is really socially constructed and it changes over time. I mean, even to, to, to say that all human beings come from Africa, I, I get what they mean, but it also on one level doesn't make sense because the construction of the continent of Africa as something that we name that is a, it's relatively recent that that Africa's probably been called that. And there are a whole lot of racist narratives about what Africa means that come into people's mind when they think about the continent of Africa, right? It gets related to savagery and darkness and backwardsness and, and violence. And so you can't just invoke Africa without invoking all of these kinds of narratives, whether they're romanticized or racist that go along with that. And so I think we need to be careful when we invoke those categories and then apply them to ancient peoples who had no knowledge or um, didn't practice uh, the culture in the way that we practice it today in human cultures. 
I mean, when we think about the culture of science, we mostly think of a sort of unbiased, value-neutral machine that uncovers true facts about the world. And, and maybe that's an ideal we can get closer to when you're working with a particle accelerator. But, but modern science does have values and bias built in from, from being largely created by European cultures. Right. One of the things I, I talk about is it's not that it's not that it's not interesting to find out, say, which population in what is today Alaska is relate more closely related to which populations uh, in what is today Siberia. Those are it's interesting to look at those genetic relations, but there's also um, this way in which scientists speak as if that is the truth, meaning the only truth or the greatest truth, um, and so they will tend to say, well things like you really come from here, right? Or Native Americans are really Asian. Well, the way that we understand ourselves as peoples, and to go back to your bias, though, before I say this next thing, there's a real, uh, there's a couple of dominant ideas that are coming through when scientists say things like that. The first one is that um, our genetic ancestry uh, should determine the way that we identify now. And there's also this idea that that human uh, communities or human movements are the only things that matter. But if one is to look at the way that indigenous peoples understand themselves, we understand ourselves as peoples, as cultures, as communities who have emerged as peoples in intimate relationship with very particular landforms and places. So we really emphasize the influence and the role of non-human relatives in our constitution as human beings and peoples. Now, if I go look at genetic narratives of human history, it is true that geneticists try to account, account for what they would call the environmental impact on human bodies and human genetics. So they look at environmental influences on genetics. Increasingly, they do this. But that's not the same thing as saying that who I am as a Dakota is made possible by the place on this earth where Dakota people emerged as a people. We really do view in our... Um, traditional stories and narratives, our non-human relatives as our kin. We don't talk about species because that language of species also points to hierarchies in the way that Western thinkers, whether they're religious thinkers or whether they're scientists, when they talk about species, who's usually on top, who's more sentient, who's more self-aware, who's more self-determined? Well, humans are. And then scientists spend a lot of time being surprised by the sentience or self-awareness or higher level thinking skills of non-human animals, whereas with a lot of indigenous people, those are our relatives. And we think about who we are in relationship to who they are. So sure, we can get excited about the fact that we have some genetic markers that we might share in common with some people in Siberia, or what is today China, and say, Oh, yeah, way, way back, we might have had some human relatives. But we're not Chinese or Japanese or Siberian or any of those things. We are who we are, because we emerged in this place as peoples. So our narratives about who we are and where we come from, are uh, constructed pretty differently. The problem is science gets commando control over what the truth is. And our, I would say, much more complex truths about history and relationships between peoples and non-humans kind of get obscured as mythology or superstition, when in fact, we're talking about material things as well. 
this may sound kind of strange, but I feel like sometimes with uh, population movement and looking at genetics to figure out how populations moved over time, sometimes it feels like we're kind of trying to build a new creation story for ourselves. Like we're saying we're all connected and including everyone, but it, it does always seem to focus in on one dominant narrative that kind of culminates in modern westernized European success. Um, other cultures that kind of branch off from that narrative are interesting and related to us in a we're all the same kind of way, but they don't lead us to that top branch that we have our eye on. So we don't really think about those other branches as uh, I think often more than interesting curiosities. It's it's like, I agree with the we're all the same race sentiment, but it also kind of feels a little bit hollow. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really interesting to, to look at some of the most um, eloquent scientists, you know, not all scientists can can speak to these things so eloquently. But I think with with the eloquence sometimes come comes uh, problematic kinds of stories. Um, you know, I, I have definitely seen um, scientists say things like, yeah, you know, we're all uh, one human race. Um, you know, we all are African underneath our skin. There is this re- recombination, pun intended, of <laughs> old school racial science with these newer narratives of uh, multicultural inclusion, um, anti-racism. And so there are some laudable sentiments involved in that, right? I think there are a lot of scientists who sincerely believe that genetic knowledge can help us mitigate or even end racism. But um, as we've spoken to already, there are uh, paradoxically, these older ideas of race that continue to inform the way that they do their sampling and the way that they tell their stories. Um, and the kind of authority they feel to uh, take control over what counts as the most authoritative story or truth. So yeah, I've um, one of the scientists that I that I write about a lot in my book, and I hate to keep picking on him. <laughs> but, you know, is, is uh, Spencer Wells, who was formerly with the Genographic Project. And uh, Spencer Wells is one of those people that tells those grand stories about, uh, um, you know, wanting to tell a, a new human story that's a genetic story and wanting to have the get access indigenous DNA in order to tell, uh, you know, for Europeans, he says, although he's American, to tell their stories and reconstruct their family tree. You know, and he's saying at one point in this film he made to an uh, indigenous artist in Australia, well, you know, you don't need those stories. Uh, you you guys have your own narratives and your own creation stories, but we've lost our stories and, and genetics is the way that we're going to reconstitute our stories as, as quote unquote European people. So basically what he's saying is, uh, yo, indigenous guy, we need your blood in order to reconstruct a dominant European narrative. And he doesn't even realize what he's saying, you know, that it, it, so, yeah. There's a, <laughs> there's a quote in your book that really kind of got in my head and stuck with me. Um, Biology is not the body itself, but a discourse on the body, a linguistic sign for a complex structure of belief and practice through which I and many of my fellow citizens organize a great deal of life. That idea, I think, may make a lot of biologists out there uncomfortable. Huh. Well, you know, I I was very much informed in that idea by my, one of my PhD advisors, Donna Haraway. <laughs> she talks about biology being a discourse upon the body. Um, you know, we can't, we're human beings uh, that are apprehending, I, I like to use the word apprehending knowledge, the scientists and a lot of a lot of academics would talk about themselves producing or creating knowledge, but we don't come to knowledge on our own. Um, we 
see things in the world and those non-humans that we observe, whether they're, you know, wolves or, or um, trees or molecules, right? Um, they are presented to us in some way in which we can look at them and apprehend uh, knowledge contained in their, in, in those, their bodies. But we, as we do that, we speak human languages, you know, we speak national languages, we speak disciplinary languages, languages that have been heavily influenced by cultural values. Um, and so we can't help but see the world in certain ways based on the languages that we speak and the values embedded in those languages. And, you know, that's, there, we're not speak, we're not coming to this, you know, speaking these, these neutral languages that give us some unadulterated view of, of nature. We, we see through particular lenses and, you know, the, the project of peer review, I think helps us bring more diverse eyes to look at a problem and maybe helps us correct our, our biases. That's not a word that I like, but, um, we don't get to stand nowhere like God, right? And see everything. Um, we're not omnipotent. We look through particular lenses and we have to account for that. And we do the best that we can, but we can't disown that we look through those lenses and that certain politics and culture shape uh, not only the words that we use actually and the methods that we use, but also the very questions that it occurs to us to ask that we think are important and interesting. Uh, and you see these differences. Indigenous communities think different questions are important and interesting than non-Indigenous researchers do. And that's not just because they're less educated or they don't know what the real problems are, but different uh, people have... Um, conceive of, of what constitutes a real research problem or question differently. You know, we have different priorities, right, that structure the kinds of things that we think it's Im important to know about. And different life experiences, too. I mean, that can make a right. big difference. It's it's like when women started to enter the workforce and science en masse, all of a sudden, there's a whole bunch of new ideas popping up because there's right. a bunch of questions about women's bodies or women's experiences that maybe nobody had thought about before because they right. weren't women. <laughs> yeah. And men, men didn't think it was important to ask them. Yeah. I yeah. think, I think about how still to this day, a lot of health and drug research doesn't include research on women's bodies still right. today. Right. Yeah. With the, you know, with the diabetes research, I mean, uh, non-indigenous people are so interested in, in looking for a genetic trigger for diabetes and maybe looking for different kinds of therapies for it. Um, and what, ha what happens in that research, I'm talking type two diabetes, it, it, Indigenous bodies and other people of color who have higher rates of type 2 diabetes, our, our genomes or our bodies tend to get looked upon as not normative, you know, not the norm. Uh, well, what constitutes the norm? The male European or European American body usually, and that's the body against which we're measured. It's the norm against which we're measured. And so they then want to look for, well, what's different genetically and how can we treat that? Well, from an indigenous perspective, uh, we know that we didn't have these epidemic rates uh, of diabetes type 2 prior to colonization. So obviously, type 2 diabetes is a colonial problem, not a problem of our bodies. Uh, you've seen Indian Health Service in the United States put a lot of energy into funding uh, gyms um, on on reservations, uh, traditional cooking classes. So for us, the, the maybe the best way to, to address type 2 diabetes isn't to 
pump millions of dollars into, you know, some laboratory at a research institute and train a whole bunch of scientists and pad up their careers. But rather, let's build gyms and have, you know, get rid of the food deserts on reservations and have gardens and all these other things that can help us live in a way that um, is more familiar to our bodies, you know, before our food systems and lifeways were completely disrupted by colonization. So is the problem our bodies or is the problem colonization? You're going to get a different answer depending on who's doing the looking. So how can we start to decolonize our science, in particular, our genetic science, especially where indigenous research is concerned? Well, you know, I used to be a little bit more pessimistic about uh, what diversifying the laboratory would do. And it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but we need to diversify who does science. That's really what it comes down to for me. We cannot have the majority of our scientists being straight white men. You know, we just can't. Now, biology, you've got you've got more and more women going into biology. I think uh, it's about 50% right now, at least in the United States. That's a good thing. And I think you've seen the results that happen from that. But we need people of color. We need indigenous people. We need queer folks doing science. Um, uh, people th- that are dis- d- disabled people, if that's the term that, that they're using. Because they, again, are these are all communities who are accustomed to having their bodies stigmatized and measured against an implicit it uh, Western white male norm. And so there has been some work done by these diverse scientists to, to ask different kinds of questions to produce different kinds of um, cultures and laboratories that make people comfortable. I, I really think diversifying sciences is, is, is really key. Kim, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a really interesting book and an interesting topic. It's been great talking with you. Oh, thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about Kim Talbear, her book, Native American DNA, or her work, you can find her at kimtalbear.com or tweet at kimtalbear. And we'll have those links available in the show notes for this episode, which you can find as always on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Up next, I speak with Keolu Fox about Indigenomics, an NGO aimed at helping create bridges between Indigenous communities and genetic research. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Keolu Fox is a postdoctoral fellow in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism in the School of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego. He's a 2016 TED Fellow and one of the heads of Indigenomics, an NGO aimed at helping create bridges between Indigenous communities and genetic research. Keolu, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me on. So most people will know what the Human Genome Project is, but for those who don't, can you maybe give us a little Cliff Notes version of what the project is and its history? Sure, sure. I'd love to. I think the primary agenda of the Human Genome Project was this idea of moving away from reactionary medicine to prediction and prevention of disease. And one way we can do that is by mapping the location of genes that are involved in the synthesis of proteins that manifest in things that we call phenotypes, things that we can physically observe. So if you can map where 
something like uh, cystic fibrosis comes from, you might be able to predict and prevent that in the future. And this is a project that happened in the early 2000s through the National Institutes of Health. And I believe the initial product was something like between $1.5 and $3 billion. And so today we've sort of brought that price down to around the $1,300 American dollar uh, amount per genome. So how many people has the Human Genome Project sequenced? Uh, I, I've seen various estimates. It's hard to know. It's easier to estimate um, how many people's genomes might have been sequenced in the United States versus other countries. I sort of have a better pulse on that. But also, it's important to differentiate between the types of de- technology that we use to survey human genetic variation in the human genome. That means... You could do something like a genome-wide association study where you're only surveying sort of canonical known variation versus something like whole genome sequencing, which actually sequences the 6 billion, around 6 billion base pairs in the human genome. So when we talk about those sorts of estimates, we have to talk about it in terms of what sort of survey of the genome are we actually looking at now all of that being said i've seen numbers between 1 and 15 million genomes being sequenced in the united states of america wow i did not know the number was that high (laughs) yeah yeah so what what would be the percentage breakdown of that for the different types of sequencing we done any idea uh, I really don't know. There isn't like a watchdog effort to or a repository where people include every single experiment that they've done. And there's also this dichotomy between private industry, what they're sequencing and doing, what their agenda is, and the federal government and federally, federally funded grants through uh, various efforts to sequence genomes. So it's a lot harder to sort of predict how many genomes have been sequenced. For whole genome, which would be kind of the the Rolls Royce, so to speak, of of these genome sequencing platforms, and then you have other efforts like these genome wide association studies, where there are some repositories for this sort of thing, and they probably a lot of these cost like thirty dollars a pop or something like that. So it's a lot easier to perform a GWAS study. Um, or a SNP chip, as we call it. Something like 23andMe, which many of the guests may have heard of, they don't actually sequence your whole genome, right? They use um, this SNP chip approach, this GWAS approach. So they're only sequencing a section of the genome, which is what brings the cost down enough that it's people will actually pay to get it done. Right. I wouldn't even say that they're sequencing. They're just performing um, an array-based test where they... Uh, assess variation that exists in, in, in known locations in the genome. So there's no potential for discovery. It's like they have these locations a priori, and they're like, okay, well, in 90% of the people we see A, and then in the other 10% we see uh, T, for example. Okay, I see. So what's the current diversity makeup of the sequence genomes of the Human Genome Project? Yeah, that's a great question. So... In 2011, a piece came out from um, Carlos Bustamante and Esteban Bouchard. Both of them are uh, Bay Area-based scientists, and they produced this paper called Genomics for the World. And in the paper, 
they detailed that 96% of these genome-wide association studies included individuals of European descent. So in my own searching, I looked within that 4% that's supposed to represent the rest of diversity, and it turns out that far less than 0.1% were actually including indigenous people in the U.S. So that includes, you know, uh, First Nations or Native American people and Native Hawaiians, Chamorro, Samoan, or Polynesian people. So that was really disappointing. Then this year, another sort of follow-up survey came out and showed that, uh, so, so do the math, that's five years later, and they showed that really there hasn't been much development other than China being involved in the game and sequencing more and more uh, Chinese individuals. But then that begs the question, so even in China, are they sequencing Uyghur populations or is this all just Han Chinese? So it's sort of the same dynamic, just recursively not attending to the diversity in each nation, if that makes sense. So uh, can you walk us through why diversity should be important to the Genome Project? I mean, some people may think, well, aren't we basically the same? Uh, won't findings on a subset that just happens to be European basically map on to all people? Yeah, I could understand that perspective. So here's the issue. Um, when we assess variation in the human genome, we find we can discover differences that might lead to understanding diseases mechanistically. So if you think about the diseases we know really well, like something like cystic fibrosis or Tay-Sachs disease, um, both of these or type 1 diabetes, these are, these are diseases that are primarily found in individuals of European ancestry. So we know how to, we know the genetic mechanism and then we can begin to understand ways to treat them. Now, what we're not discovering, uh, and we have, there is some preliminary data on this, some interesting studies of looking at Greenlandic Inuit individuals, for example. They found variation in a gene called FADS1, 2, and 3. These are multiple genes, and they're involved in fatty acid metabolism. You know, something like these uh, essential omega-3s and omega-6s that you find in something like whale blubber or muktuk, which are found in these populations that that um, have hot enrichment from marine-based diets. So we're learning a lot mechanistically about how we break down uh, these essential fats. Now, what's really interesting is that this variant might be protective against heart disease, which has profound implications for developing treatment in the future. And if uh, you're familiar, heart disease is the number one cause of death in the United States of America. So when we look at examples like that, we can learn a lot from indigenous communities that have been geographically isolated over thousands of years. This is just one sort of take on this, but we don't know how many are out there and we don't know how many might be lost if we don't begin to sequence these populations, if they are affected by uh, climate change and become climate change refugees and uh, they move from their geographic, uh, you know, location and they, you know, and we lose that diversity. So, so, you know, we, we need to begin to think about ways to include indigenous people in the future of genetic research in a way that values indigenous knowledge and benefits them. So this is uh, applicable to genetics, and it's also applicable to a lot of wider health research, is my understanding. I mean, a huge number of just drug and health trials also solely focus on European descended people, or mostly focus on European descended people. 
That's correct, yeah. About 95% of clinical trials have solely featured individuals of European descent. So that doesn't really do us a lot of service. When we're developing drugs where we know that genetic differences in genes that might be responsible for metabolism of drugs exist. So you have plenty of different stories like the clopridogrel um, scenario in Hawaii where this drug was was not working in uh, Pacific Islander and native Hawaiian communities, which make up the lion's share of Hawaii, right? Yeah. So is part of the problem here an assumption from scientists that we're, we're more similar than we actually are at the genetic level or that there's less variation? Or is it more of like an unconscious sort of racial bias? Um, I don't. I don't think that there's an. Un, I don't think that scientists are assuming that very that this variation doesn't exist. Private variation and rare variation is very well documented, especially in minority populations. We know that this private variation and rare variation is population specific, and there have just been countless publications indicating that. However, there is a very strange relationship between indigenous people who feel like there has been a history of distrust and exploitation and this sort of uh, vampiristic helicopter genomics biocolonial approach of taking genetic material, leaving, never returning, publishing those results in nature, getting that tenure track position, buying a nice BMW M3 and driving your kids to private school. Meanwhile, indigenous people have not benefited at all. So when you look at these indigenous genomics papers in journals like Nature and Science, it's really hard to find a native name in the author list. And that's another form of exploitation, in my opinion. So when we're, there is definitely a history of geneticists and science researchers coming into indigenous communities and those relationships not going well. Can you maybe give us a couple of examples that people uh, potentially don't know about to kind of illustrate where these relationships can go wrong? Let me start in one of my favorite places in the world, Hawaii, on the island of Molokai, where there was, at the time, in the late 1890s, the largest leper colony in the world. Native Hawaiians were taken away from our land and assumed to have leprosy or Hansen's disease. We were isolated in what Robert Louis Stevenson referred to as a natural fortified prison, and we weren't treated very well. And this is an instance where Leprosy affected Native Hawaiian people differently than it affected individuals of European descent. Sometimes people of European descent, famously people like uh, Father Damien or Saint Damien now, he actually contracted leprosy himself. But this is one of those instances where Native Hawaiian people were ostracized, likely because of a variation that we didn't know existed in our genomes and our susceptibility to developing leprosy. And you can extrapolate that to other sort of uh, things that have happened with the Tuskegee Airmen, what happened uh, in Havasupai, where scientists from Arizona State uh, promised to do a survey of genetic variation in these um, populations to look at type 2 diabetes, they then turned around and used those samples to assess interbreeding and origin stories of those people, and they ended up settling out of court. Uh, but these, these I could keep going with examples, but, but there are many. Keolu, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you very much for the opportunity.
And if you want to learn more about Keolu Fox or the Indigenomics Project, we have links to get you started on our website, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 